I don't want to build a big organization. I don't want a huge building in New York that says Wonder Bag. I want to have as least employees as possible and as many entrepreneurs around me. Welcome to another edition of Expedition Business, where we talk to inspiring entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of their business journey and how on earth they managed to keep the flame of business adventure burning. My name is Christelle Rosley-Fenter, your host and the one insanely privileged to be talking to Sarah Collins, founder of Wonderbag. But before I introduce Sarah to you, I would like to remind you to subscribe, like, comment and share this podcast with as many of your friends and family as possible. Without your help, we cannot continue to share the amazing stories of our South African entrepreneurs. But back to Sarah and the Wonderbag story. For those of you who do not know yet, The Wonder Bag is a slow cooker designed to reduce cooking time, fuel use and carbon emissions. It also lightens the load of women in countries where open fire cooking and hours of unpaid labor daily falls to them. She has received Time Magazine's Top 50 Most Genius Companies Accolade in 2018 amongst a sea of awards. From London to Rwanda, Wonderbag started with a few cushions in a kitchen and is today a global company affecting millions of lives. Sarah, it is an honor to welcome you to Expedition Business. Thanks, Crystal. It's wonderful to be with you today. I believe you have been arrested as a teenager in 1986 for striking against apartheid, then went on to live and work in the Okavango Delta in your 20s, setting up many ecotourism and social enterprises. How did these experiences influence the work that you do? So, Kristen, I think it's a very important question you've asked, um, and because I think one needs to understand um, one's personal journey uh, to actually understand how I get to where I am today. And um, growing up in apartheid South Africa, um, I think really formed the background of um, of the actis- activism that um, has inspired and um, I suppose, injected the passion that has followed me throughout my life um, and created this sort of entrepreneurial businesses that I've taken. So I grew up um, in KwaZulu-Natal in a very colonial um, upbringing um, and a very patriarchal upbringing. Um, My father was an entrepreneur. We are fourth-generation business. However, um, we also come from a primogenitor environment where the money all runs down the male side of the family. 
and um, boys were far more important than girls. So for me, it was very confusing because I was adored by my father, um, and yet our main caregivers were wonderful, rich, incredibly warm people who were Zulu, and um, and they. So I started to speak Zulu at the same time that I started to speak English. And in fact, Zulu was my, my primary language because those were our caregivers. And I found it confusing that um, my brothers sort of ate in the dining room and were um, kind of definitely more important than my sister and I. And our, we were brought up by these wonderful nannies and their children but they weren't allowed to sleep in our house. They weren't allowed to come on holiday with us. Um, uh, and and so for me, I didn't understand. I didn't. I didn't understand what was going on. And by the time I was eight, there was a really burning anger within me that the people that loved me most were living in in, in very dire conditions on the farm. And their children went to, to schools not like ours. And um, and I just felt this deep, deep sense of unfairness and inequality. And so that's really where I started my entrepreneurial um, endeavors was to grow vegetable gardens and to sell the vegetables on the side of the road so that I could buy my school friends um shoes uh to go to school and um and uh so that's where it really started and um and I, I think I became fiercely um combative with with the environment of which I so called lived and um and as a result really was um troublesome you know and I kept trying to run away from the white elite uh, colonial life that I lived and I just wanted to live in the Zulu villages and be with people that I felt safe with um, and by the time um, and by the time I was 12 I was um, becoming really really curious about the situation and when I was 14 I said to my father that I needed to go um, to an Afrikaans school because I needed to understand the language of the oppressor because only if I understood Afrikaans would I then understand the mindset and I wanted to infiltrate the Bruderbund and um, and so I went to an Afrikaans school for a year and okay. <laughs> it was a it was a, a, a very right-wing school, and I, I spent a lot of time listening in the the sitting rooms um, of the pair of the parents of the children from the school to, to understand. And I came out of there really radically transformed. And um, I suppose that's where my political activism started. And um, I travelled to London and spent time outside South Africa House. Um, I then, um, in the referendum, um, when they said um, the Rubicon speech and all that, mm -hmm. and I challenged P.W. Boerter, they wouldn't listen to me, they wouldn't answer my questions, so I stood on a chair, I was arrested by the security forces, spent my first night in jail, 
and then became a nuisance really to the to the the government of the time um and found a way to work with the ANC um outside of the country to bring in um literature and various things and by the time I I um I wrote my matric on the Bruderbund. I, I I think that that had enough, and I was asked to leave. So I then <laughs> went to the UK, and <laughs> and, um, and then lived a very wild and unusual life, living outside South Africa house and studying and and doing things. But um, I did come back to South Africa. Um to finish my degree and um and then Nelson Mandela was was um released and um but South Africa was has never been a comfortable place for me um Africa is is where I I, I feel and and African villages and and part of rural Africa was really where my heart belonged because there was the a battle to jail with racism and um and I felt a huge guilt. I had a big guilt um issue around being white, about being born into a family that of means. And so that I suppose formed um the way that I viewed the world and um and I went to Botswana um and the Okavango Delta had been part of our family's lives for years and years and years. And I always saw the domain of these wealthy Americans coming in with massive dollars, but they just went straight out the country. And what about all these communities that were part of the Okavango Delta? So that's really where I started my first social enterprise was to um, work with eight communities, 20,000 people, and we lobbied the government and against everybody's worst nightmares um i won this concession at the age of 28 um yeah. of 1050 square kilometers and we built lodges and we became the put the most people on the rivers of the okavango than anybody else um and i'm very proud of that legacy it continues today um Planet Okavango, which I started, is, is one of the, the biggest um, mobile companies in the Okavango, and our lodges continue today. Um, I sold out in 2003 because I felt that there was – I needed to broaden – the exposure of communities around conservation areas, and I needed to look at who were our future leaders. And and the inequality of women was becoming incredibly, increasingly um, a problem for me. And um, and so I, I and so I came back to South Africa, and I started something called Take Back the Future, which was taking as many young people as I could into the wild areas of Southern Africa, um, including Botswana, Namibia, South Africa. And we took over 300,000 young people into the wild areas and showed them what Africa really was and what belonged to them. And, and we took them out of really abject poverty environments. Um, many of these young people were being brought up by grandmothers um, and the situation was, and these young people would spend five days just in 
inspired by by what they had seen and the experiences they had. But then they went back into abject poverty. And that's when I realized I had to do something that was going to change the status of the grandmother. And so I think from 2005, I, um, I realized that my life's mission would be to be working with um, the grandmother or the mother of the home and to see how we could change the economic status of that home. And, um, and so I went and did many, many ventures, social enterprises and things. But the biggest issue was indoor air pollution related diseases around fires and the amount of time that women across Africa um, were cooking over open fires. And, um, and it was the girls that collected the firewood, the boys went to school. So this just triggered straight back into my childhood. Mm -hmm. And I went, this is not okay. Um, and so I spent some time exploring clean cooking solutions and, um, and looking at who was addressing the most pressing problem on the planet, which is I think the responsibility of entrepreneurs is to actually take the biggest challenges on the earth and, and, and do something about them. And um, indoor air pollution related diseases was killing more people annually than malaria, AIDS and all of the other things. So I looked around and I realized that these cook stove solutions were coming out of universities of the West mm -hmm. and um, there was just too much of a behavior gap and you know, the countrysides were just littered with aid projects that with failed cook stoves. And, um, and that began my, my real foray into finding some alternative to, um, to change the heart of the home, which was the kitchen. And, um, and that economic force was, was really what I focused on. And in fact, I didn't start Wonder Bag because of load shedding. Load shedding was the final catalyst for me that drove me personally to go into my mind and, 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 and dig deep, 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 deep and think hard because I don't like eating out at night. And, um, and in, in April 2008, you'll remember there was those rolling blackouts. And, um, and every night we had to go to some load shedding restaurant that served steak. And I was like, this is not going to work for me. And, um, and so I lay awake many nights thinking there's got to be something else. And then I remembered my grandmother had a box in her kitchen um, that had cushions in it that was actually started by Bridget Oppenheimer and, and other people called a wonder box. Mm -hmm. And it was um, an age old technology of heat retention cooking and women for peace was the recipients. Um, and that was done and driven by the black session, various other people around um, Bridget Oppenheimer. And so I thought to myself, no, no, this has got to be something. And that's really, I found that Wonder Box. And that's how the journey of Wonder Bag began. Well, super, super inspiring. But 
The Wonder Bag is described as a funky design cloth bag stuffed with squishy insulation made from recycled insulation from, I believe, cars and houses. How does recycling have an impact in your life? So, um, I did not want to create waste or create a, a product that had um, that was going to litter the environment. And so I needed to look for a, a recycled insulation property or insulation material that we could recycle into bags. Um, and we started with what the Wonder Box was, which was um, polystyrene. But we used up all the polystyrene, the, the repurposed polystyrene in South Africa very quickly because of the demand of the wonder bags. And, um, and we'd seen this economic shift very early on in households. So I knew that, um, that we had to find something that was, that we could get anywhere in any city, in any town across the world. Um, and so with an amazing R&D partner, we, um, we started to look at repurposing um, fabric, I, I mean, sort of um, cushions, you know, like uh, furniture and, and um, cars, you know, the inside of cars, seats and old mattresses and all of that kind of stuff. And there was a huge market back then of Europe, all the waste product from the furniture industry, the manufacturing industry, the automobile industry, and they didn't know where to send their waste. And it was being dumped in oceans and things. And so we said, why can't you put it into containers and send it to us and we will repurpose it? And that's how that became the insulation property. So every single wonder bag is repurposed foam from some industry or other or off cuts or so we have huge chippers where we take big blocks of old foam and things and then we chip it into the right grammage for the um, ultimate insulation um, that we need. Sure. But Crystal, I think, you know, one of the things about this business is, is that it, it seems on the surface like um, we make and sell Wonder Bags. Mm -hmm. But my job is to get Wonder Bags to the grandmother in the most rural part of Africa at a price that she can afford. Mm. And that's... That's the challenge, is how do you get a Wonder Bag, which costs, you know, $15 to make, um, how, do you, how does Mrs. Lamini pay $15 for a bag? Mm. And, um, and I have been at the, <laughs> at the, the bad end of the stick of philanthropy, of aid, 
you know, I don't believe in institutional aid. Um, the humanitarian aid organizations work very well in emergency situations, but once they become institutionalized aid, I think it becomes very disempowering and it is a it it reduces the agency of people. And so for me, I was looking at empowering ways for people to choose what they needed in their kitchen at a price that they could afford. Mm. Um, and it had to be a commercial business because I did not want to be an NGO. I am, I have been around the NGO world on its peripheries for a long time. I started an NGO of my own and I just, I, I, I knew that business drives change, not NGOs. And, um, and that may be a very controversial statement, but I believe it and I've seen it and um, I do try and work um, and, and, and bridge the gap between uh, the humanitarian aid agencies and um, social enterprise because those two put together is the perfect model because they've got infrastructure that we don't have, but there has to be People have to choose what they want. Mm. Hand-me-downs and belittling and keeping people in poverty is not okay. Mm. Um, so that began a, a journey into looking for a way to subsidize Wonder Bags um, to a price that people could afford. And um, and that's when I discovered that there was a financial mechanism that was talked about by the World Bank at least 40 years ago, 50 years ago now, um, where the people that were going to be most affected by climate change were actually the people that were the least emitters. And, um, and so we, they needed to look for a financial mechanism where... Um, where the biggest emitters could pay for innovations to support the people living right at the coalface of, of climate change, droughts, famine, um, you know, floods. We're seeing it all now. It's all living out um, before our eyes. So that's how I went into the world of carbon credits and um, na navigated a very very treacherous world mm -hmm. um and um and i think that's the great success of wonderbag is the business model that is where unilever comes into play if i have it correct well i think that's giving unilever far too much credit um i am um, basically what happened was i tried to get unilever to understand what um what a wonder bag was and that 69 percent of their carbon footprint is actually their consumer um and there was a young man youngish man that um, became unilever's uh, global ceo called paul pullman um at the end of 2009 and I started to follow him because he came in with these massive ambitions. And I'm, I'm one for go big or go home. Mm -hmm. And he came in and he said, I'm, I'm taking away um, uh, CSI, um, corporate social responsibility, which I just do not believe in because it's political and it's 
throwaway money and it's just got all sorts of connotations to it. So um, it's a feel-good factor rather than driving uh, driving fundamental change. And so he took that away and he tried to – and he built – and purpose into brands. And he did that in the first three months. And I was desperate to get an audience with him because um, he said that what he was going to do in his tenure as CEO was to double the income and halve the carbon footprint of Unilever. And I had the tool to do that. But how do you get to see Paul Pullman and um, and Unilever and Durban were sort of not terribly interested in what I was doing because it's easier to use T-shirts and and you know for volume drivers airtime and everything and to try and bring in something so new you know it it was hard mm. so I spent a long time trying to and and we were hand to mouth by then and. Um, and but at the same time, I had um, run data to prove how much we were saving in firewood, electricity, and I took all that raw data in a notebook, assisted by my sister who bought me an outfit and got me a, um, an appointment with J.P. Morgan, uh-huh. and um, I, I presented to J.P. Morgan this tattered notebook of six months worth of of data and they looked at this and they said, I think you've got a carbon credit project. And I went, you see it? And they said, we're gonna come out on Monday and verify what you've got. And so they gave me the first $100,000 to start um, registering this as a carbon credit project. But it was household by household, develop um, new methodologies and you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. I'm just a <laughs> a passionate farm girl with a desire to change the world. And um, but I was determined. And um, in 2010, I just I was at Unilever's offices, trying again to talk to a brand manager. And I'd left the wonder bag on um, on a chair, and I'd gone to the restroom. And when I came out, there was a tall um, a man from Holland holding this bag and everybody was trying to scramble around to find out what it was. And I said, it's mine. And it was Paul Pullman. And he said, well, let her tell me what this is. So I told him and he said, this is the very product that's going to change and, um, and have our carbon footprint and double our income. So within six months, we did a million bags with Unilever, and we drove their ROIs by 247%. So that proved Paul Pullman's um, belief that doing good was good for business and reducing the carbon footprint. And we sold those carbon credits to Microsoft to fund that business. Well, did I hear correct? You said a million bags in six months? Yeah, so Christelle, this is where it all gets interesting because when somebody gives you an order for a hundred thousand bags and uh, to be delivered in six weeks, and you're making ten bags a week, and um, I said no problem, <laughs> and my team looked at me and went, "What do you mean no problem?" I said, "We do it. What? what I mean, 
we do it. And everyone looked at me. And, and that's what, you know, Brene Brown talks about the man in the arena, you know, you've got to get in there, dust and all. And, and, um, and we did it. We delivered 100,000 bags in the first six weeks. They sold out in two weeks, and then they gave us an order for a million. And um, by that stage, I had no money, and uh, I just was – but we did it. We did it. And, and that's what an entrepreneur is. You just do it. And listen, it wasn't pretty, hey? It was not pretty, and it wasn't easy, and I got into deep financial problems because – I didn't have the funding, but I just thought I'd get the funding. And I, luckily, there were people like Paul who believed in me, and um, and we were able to raise the funding, and Microsoft were able to pay us. And, but it was, you know, you just go hell for leather, and you make a plan, and you, you get people sewing in every single place you can. You, you hire the next person on the street who says they know how to um, – you know, do logistics. <laughs> you, you don't go through any processes and there's no HR and oh my goodness. It was a shit show. But it was extraordinary. And um and we did it through so the partnership was also with, with ShopRite. So we did it through ShopRite. And I mean, you know, I, I was talking to um I was talking to an MBA class at um, at Harvard, and they said, "But how did you get Shoprite, Unilever, Microsoft? How did you just sort of get them all together and did it all within twelve months?" And and I said, "Well, you just ask. You just knock on doors, and you just said this is how it is, and you just persuade. So they follow." You know, and and it's often a case as an entrepreneur, you just got to believe in what you're doing, and others believe you, and they follow you, and and you know what was the worst that could happen? It all fell down, and I had to waitress. You know, I'd waitressed at university, and I and I I could manage, and so you know you got to go for it. And if I failed, well, I failed trying. Oh. Absolutely insane. Tell me, Sarah, is there anything that you are scared of doing? Because it doesn't sound like it. Well, people say that I was mad to run against Jacob Zuma in the 2008 elections. And um, I didn't think it was mad at all. I thought it was important that um, his, you know, the policies around women and the shower incident just before he mm -hmm. was running in the 2000. And I had to leave the ANC and I, with a partner, set up um, Woman Forward. And we ran an amazing campaign against, um, for, uh, against, um, <laughs> against Jacob Zuma and the ANC. And, you know, everybody said, but what if you fail? And I went, but what if I change somebody's mindset? And um, and so we had an amazing manifesto, and it was a huge experience for me to run a political campaign. Even my dad was up the street poles tying up posters <laughs> down the street. Cute. And um, 
Yeah, and people like uh, you know Ian Player and and people voted for me. They believed in in what I was saying, and and uh, Nanangobe is my partner, and she's uh, she's Albert Latuli's granddaughter, and you know I don't fear anything because do you know I think I'm going to tell you a secret. First time I'm admitting this. But I was an alcoholic, and I got sober yesterday, 19 years ago. And I think if you can conquer an addiction, and you can still be functioning and build a business in the Okavango, and do all that when you are addicted to something and you use it as a crutch, and I realized I had to give that up, and I've never had a drink since. And... um. But I hit a rock bottom. And I think when you hit a rock bottom, when you don't want to live anymore, everything's up from there, you know. And um, and I think, you know, if you had to say to me, what is your proudest thing? I would say to you that I'm 19 years sober and, um, and that I conquered my greatest demon. And um, coming from a dysfunctional home, you know, you have to look at, at your demons and you have to face them and you have to seize opportunities. And, and once you've been able to do that, um, nothing worse can be as bad as that rock bottom. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, yeah, we are all running with a lot of demons, but very few people are brave enough to admit it and do something about it. Yeah. And another thing that, that, you know, this has not been an easy journey. Let me tell you, I'm 53 and it, life has been tough. And there have been times when I have lay on the floor just saying to my sister, I can't go on and I, I, I'm just going to die. I want to die. I can't do this. And she just stands over me. She stood over me once and she gave me a big kick and she said, do you think Steve Jobs behaved like this? Get up and get on with it. And I said, well, he actually probably did. <laughs> but I did get up and I got on with it. And, you know, I, I, I think that, I think that, um, I think that, yeah, if you overcome things, part of an entrepreneur, I, I think the biggest lesson that I have learned as an entrepreneur, and if, because it's been hard, it's been tough, I haven't had any money, I've had to beg, borrow, steal, I've had to, not still, but you know what I mean. And I've had to reinvent myself. I've had to become a corporate animal and and live in New York and, you know, work with the likes of Jeff Bezos and people who, who are not people I thought I would work with. But matching technology and subsidizing bags in rural Africa there's been amazing synergies between some of the biggest corporate players in the world. And I, I feel very proud of the fact that I've been able to bridge that gap. And I'd love to tell you a funny story about that if we've got time. But, but the thing is, is that, um, is that, um, yeah, so it hasn't been easy, but, when I look back now, if somebody had to say to me, Sarah, what is the biggest lesson that that you've learned and you wish you knew 10 years ago? 
was that storms pass and they really do and you have to sit tight and it's bloody hard sitting tight sometimes and I have had days when I've just sobbed and sobbed but the sun has come out and it's been okay and if you have faith in what you're doing and you are doing the right thing for the right reasons and I'm extremely privileged that I have an incredible product which works amazingly and has huge impact within homes and within communities. Um, but I also have a passion. And that passion taught me faith. And so that is a great privilege. And, um, and so based on those two facts, I'm able to sit through those those lightning strikes now and I look back I look back on 2000 at the end of 2022 which was a particularly hard year for me and I thought if I knew now in December if I'd known in January what I know now would I have stressed and had a breakdown almost and went into burnout and just you know and of course I wouldn't have because everything worked out and all that worry and stress and everything, if you just sit it out, it goes. And that's, it's at those critical moments that people give up. And I just, you know, yeah, I know what it feels like to, to want to give up. And I know it very well. I've wanted to give up much many 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 times and you know I'm 15 years in now and yeah I mean I'm I, I loved your your comment on my um, LinkedIn profile was why are you complaining about these aren't your words but I'm just saying them as this is what you sort of intimated is why are you complaining about breaking into male glass ceilings why don't you just enjoy it and do what you're doing best and was that what you said? Something yeah, like <laughs> it was something like that. I, yeah. yeah, I think we're not going to change them. We can just smile and carry on. No, I agree. And, and you know, just for your listeners, the article was about women breaking glass ceilings in male worlds. Um, and um, and I, I was a bit fed up that day with men. And, um, and, I, and I just thought, why is it always a man's world? Why can't it just be all of our world? But, you know, I think one of the, mo one of the things that I feel strongly is, is that when I want to give up, I realized that I didn't have a role model. And, um, and I wish there were people that I could phone and say, could you mentor me? Could you help me? Because I was driving through thickets of, I, I mean, I was pioneering stuff that had never been done before. So I didn't have a book I could refer to or somebody I could call. And, um, and you know, when I asked for help, they said, this is just a gimmick. It's not going to work. Just give the $20,000 back to, to whoever gave it to you and, and, and be, you know, be an au pair. I mean, that's what somebody told me. Oh, and I'm like, you know, fine. And those are the things that, that I feel there is a responsibility. And this may sound arrogant, and I don't want it to at all, Christelle, but I do feel that 
women like me and other women who are also doing this, they do have a responsibility to the next generations that we need to to be front runners. We all have, they have to be front runners and we have to stick around long enough to pass on our knowledge and we have to write books so that people know what it feels like when you're lying under the bed, having your food pushed in under the bed because you can't face the world, you know, and it's okay to, that for that to happen, you know, um, and it's okay to mess up. I, I'm a terrible manager. I can't manage people and I feel such a failure and um and 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 I'm asking at the moment for help you'll see on my LinkedIn profile I'm desperately looking for an engineering magician um and um you know I I'm, I'm not a manager um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I admit to that and, um, and it's okay not to be rather ask for help, you know, and which we entrepreneurs tend to know it our way or mm -hmm. the highway. Uh -huh, and, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, you can go that route. I've made the decision and I'm loving it because I always want to be in the room with people that are smarter than me. There are so many amazingly much smarter people than me and we are launching a new phase of Wonderback and I just, uh, I'm like a, a sponge around those people because they are leading the way. They know, and I mean, obviously I'm, part of the process but I don't have to be the the sounding voice you know mm -hmm. I've learned to listen and um, and these are all things that you learn with with <laughs> with a lot of car crashes should I say um, <laughs> okay but you survived and, um, the car crashes yeah, and I think, Krista, one of the other things that the car crashes made me do is to seek out help in different directions. And one of them is is that I I can't manage people and I can't I, – I, I have a meeting and then everybody understands it differently. And I go, but this, that's not what I said. And then I started to think about this, and I, I have a nephew, and he understood me, and my other nieces and nephews didn't. And I thought to myself, shit, you know what? I'm ADHD. And then I started to go down that route of exploring it, and then I was diagnosed, and I reached out to an ADHD coach in New York, and I've been with her for a year, and it has transformed me because I can laugh at my terrible executive functioning and all the things that I can't do that other people do so well and the things that I do so well that other people don't do so well. So embracing my difference um, has been so empowering for me because I'm able to now communicate to people and say, hey, I don't get your humor. Um, or I don't understand what you're saying, and they say, can you repeat yourself? So you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's embracing your differences, and I think 
ego is one of the most dangerous words in our world, you know, and um, is when we can start to laugh at ourselves and laugh at, you know, for Nelson Mandela Day this year, I decided to do um, two wonder bags for 67 rand. And I only thought about it 12 hours before Mandela Day. Yes. I didn't really um, talk to my team too much. I just asked my developers and stuff, can we do it? And they said yes. And by five past 12 on in the night, our system started crashing. And we sold 50,000 wonder bags with the cr- systems crashed half the time. I mean, it was just a shit show. But we did it. We lost a few people who couldn't manage the 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 the, the, the high ride, and um, you know, I make mistakes like that. But hell, did we have fun? I mean, we all packed bags, we all jumped in, we ate KFC for days. I mean, we were all packing bags from every single person I knew was roped in, you know, and um, and we were making it was fun. But it was it was not thought through. Mm-hmm. But you did it, Sarah. I want to quickly come back to portion where you said you had to beg and borrow money to get your operation going. Um, but you also come from a very affluent family. Did that not help you in any way? So, Christelle, that's a very good question because that was the most difficult thing because I come from an opulent family. Everybody thought my family would be backing me. But because I'm a girl, they don't back us. Um, And so I'm seen as a trust fund kid, but I have not received anything from our family. Um, And so that's very difficult. And that's why I went abroad where nobody knew who I was because – I was able to raise funding on merit and on my business model and on my passion and on the excellence of what I was doing and the mission of um, transforming, you know, climate change at at um, with the people most affected by it. So, um, unfortunately, yeah, coming from a wealthy family is a huge disadvantage if you're a girl. And the money runs down the male side of the family. Mm-hmm. A very hard, hard, and I'm going to say it again, a hard, bitter pill to swallow. It's 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 been a very uh, a cruel thing for me to accept. I've had many people say, but you should fight it. In this day and age, how can that be that your brothers fly in private jets and you um can't afford an air ticket um on a commercial flight. Uh shit happens. And you know, Christelle, I said to my brother the other day, I said to him, you know, I'm so glad I didn't get the money that you guys got because I'm not sure that I would have achieved and been the person I am today if I'd been given that money and it been worth billions because I've had to sweat. And that sweat has made me a very deeply empathetic person, and I care. I care deeply about people, and um, and I can't be propped up by money, you know. Um, and Wonderbag is a passion-driven business. 
obviously it it has to make money because it's a commercial business um and i've managed i mean I, I will tell you that i have partners like anglo-american i'm a female hundred percent female owned business um and people like anglo-american have invested a lot of money in me now um and other businesses you know um nando's um uh edf uh lots of people now i have very great global um global partners and investors and i've done that on my own so there has been no balance sheets from anybody else um and I'm, I mean, I'm proud of that, Christelle. I'm proud. I mean, for a big, one of the biggest companies in the world to to invest in a company that didn't have a great balance sheet and is 100% woman-owned in a totally male mining-orientated world, it was a great moment for me. Well, well, that is so insanely inspiring you have got no idea but something that i'm also thinking of was that if you had the privileges you wouldn't have had all the awards all the time magazine accolades nothing of those most probably no that's what i'm saying i mean maybe i would have ended up on a yacht sipping champagne and died you know 19 years ago but because I didn't have the privilege of money to hide behind I needed to go and I wanted to make a difference I wanted to you know I was faced 19 years ago with a decision die or do something and I decided that if I was going to live I was going to live one of the most extraordinary lives that anybody had ever lived, and I was going to change the world as best as I could. And so that has been my driving force. Sarah, just coming back to entrepreneurship, something that we haven't spoken about yet is the Wonderback is also seen as a catalyst for female entrepreneurs. Do you want to quickly tell us about how no. that story plays out. This is my deep passion. So I don't want to build a big organization. I don't want a huge building in New York that says Wonder Bag. I want to have as least employees as possible and as many entrepreneurs around me. And for me, what it is about is giving somebody a job is not taking them out of poverty. Creating opportunity takes generations out of poverty. And I am so privileged to be witnessing around me some of the greatest female entrepreneurs that have come through Wonder Bags that, that are thriving. And, um, and that's from whether you're a Wonder Woman selling Wonder Bags in your community or you are manufacturing Wonder Bags for us or you are working on the data side of our business, we empower entrepreneurs to do the things that need to make Wonder Bag work. And, um, and so I always call it the sunflower model, is, is that we have a core team in the middle and then the petals of the sunflowers are all the entrepreneurs um, that 
grow from from the middle and um and that is that will probably be if, if on my grave <laughs> i'd like to say that um i wasn't successful but what was successful is the amount of entrepreneurial women who have taken have changed the generational shifts of poverty in africa do you want to quickly tell us about how this whole entrepreneurial story works how it inspires so i'm people. going to tell you so i'm going to tell you a quick story which will illustrate that there's two five thousand of these stories uh-huh. but um so a woman was um sewing wonder bag and uh, not sewing wonder bag she she was sewing curtains she'd borrowed 200 rand from her brother-in-law because her husband wouldn't give it to her and she'd bought um some fabric and borrowed the grandmother next door's sewing machine and she was going around selling and making curtains and bedspreads and her husband um was a part-time driver for us and um and he was watching what we were doing and um, because we would drop um at uh, early childhood development centers or women's groups or um anywhere that people could look after their children but make an income we would drop all the raw materials and then we'd come back two days and pick up the wonder bags and pay the ladies um, and so that's how it, it started and then he said my wife can make sewing i mean um bedspreads so i said sure we'll, we'll do the same model with her and so we started dropping um 50 sets of, of of raw materials and she'd have them made and and today she employs 67 people um she's doing 20,000 wonder bags a month and she has another five entrepreneurs that she's empowered making wonder bags in their homes now that is a massive success story if you know what i mean mm-hmm. i can imagine i've also read somewhere that wonder bag also helps for women who sells food next to the road to keep it warm yeah so so entrepreneurs take many many forms um you know one of them is that people sell food at taxi ranks at building sites etc etc so we support those women with startup capital and then they are able to use those wonder bags to sell food and then they can grow their businesses um so that's one that's one aspect of it um there are also women that sell wonder bags um and earn an inc- earn a commission on every wonder bag that they sell um there are oh you know entrepreneurs this women are now opening soup kitchens um with the support of wonder bag and they are turning those into social enterprises there's so many many different ways that we empower people we have datapreneurs which are people that um monitor our wonder bags that are part of our carbon credit projects um and so they are paid accordingly we have activation teams where we set up teams but it becomes their own business but they activate on our behalf 
so they can grow their businesses. I really believe that Africa is every woman in Africa and and some men are <laughs> natural entrepreneurs and um and that's been the greatest joy um of my life is uh, of this journey is to see the success of the entrepreneurs that take these opportunities run with them change their lives change their children's lives um start other businesses um i remember one of my favorite pairs of shoes that i'd worn since i was probably 19 um and uh, had worn them right through my horse safari days when i set up for horse safari in botswana and then you know and i was in ghana and there was a woman who was an entrepreneur and she didn't have shoes and um she was one of our activators and i said i'm going to give you these shoes and last week i got a picture from her and she's still wearing those shoes and she's still on stages activating wonder bags and that just makes me so happy oh wow wow tell me quickly all these stories of all these women and all these entrepreneurs have you got any plans to put it in a book yeah so i am i have two books on the go um and one is going to be a um food through entrepreneurs so that will be the stories of of women entrepreneurs through wonderbag food um manufacturing all of that um and then i have another book which will be my memoir um but very much based on um on my entrepreneurship of uh, entrepreneurial journey and not the beautiful book where it tells you how fantastic it was and how it was swimming the i want to talk about the guts and gore of mm. what it actually really takes because i think that's the stories we need to hear mm-hmm. um rather than those wonderful um you know i saw somewhere that you you asked people what book would you recommend mm. um to to and the best book i read was shoe dog by yes. um phil knight okay and i read it at a very tough time and um, when i was launching in america and i just wanted to go home and um and phil knight that book inspired me it became my bible Oh well, wow. interesting that you mention it. Um we actually spoke about Shudok on our previous podcast episode oh. and um and I knew I had it. I knew I read it at some point and when I looked the book up, I saw that my kids gave it for my birthday a year ago. Oh wow. <laughs> well, it's a absolutely phenomenal read and I I keep it next to my bed for inspiration. Oh, wow. Wow. I will definitely go and read it again. Sarah, mm-hmm. something that I'd also like to come back. You've mentioned the guts and go and I think that is one of expedition business's um big aims is not just to talk about the highs but also the lows. Uh you mentioned burnout um a couple mm. of times, but what of a fun of a fun and exciting ways that you used to regroup refocus and rejuvenate yourself yeah so i don't have any words after 7:00 o'clock 
I don't talk after seven o'clock in the evening. And um, and people know that if they come to dinner, we eat at five, um, or or you cook your own food. Um, so for me, between seven in the evening and seven in the morning are my time, and I don't work if I can help it. Um, so I knit, I listen to podcasts, I um, I do things that I want to do, I read, um, I play with my dog, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I have, I, I, yeah, that's what I do, I, and, um, and in the morning at seven o'clock, the kids come in, and we have a play, and whatever, before they go to school, and, um, but I get up at five, or half past four, so that I've got all that time, to just regroup with myself, meditate if you want to um, think. I, I need time to think. Um, I journal. I really recommend a coach. Um, I'm, I, at the moment, have an ADHD coach, uh, a therapist, and she's absolutely incredible. Um, find somebody who works for you, you know, um, whether it's a, a business coach Business coaches have never really worked for me, but um, I've had different sorts of coaches throughout my life, and I, I really think an hour a week is, is vital. Um, I also start, I, I play, which I never used to do. You know, I sing and dance with my dog. My children are so embarrassed, and my nieces and nephews, they pay me not to sing. But... Um, <laughs> In the quietness of my house, I make up songs, and Harry thinks it's wonderful, and we dance. Um, cold water swimming is a huge part of my life. Wow. Um, that, that changed my entire, um, my entire way of being, um, and that is very much uh, part of what I do um, in the day. Um, I also think that, you know, people frown on pajama days and nighty days and um, staying in bed. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with working from your bed um, and having a nap in between. Um, yeah, I mean, people would say, start running, do this, do that. I used to be a marathon runner. I used to do all that extreme sport. I got very ill. Burnout um, took me out very, very badly in 2017. And so I had to think about um, what I could do that that didn't drive you know, we are all driven by extremists. Entrepreneurs are extremists. Mm -hmm. So I stopped being an extremist in my own little world between seven and seven. And um, and I have nothing to prove anymore. You know, I'm I'm okay to to just uh, excuse myself and say sorry, I've run out of words today. And um, uh, and and that, that's fine. And if somebody doesn't like, hasn't finished the conversation, well, then we'll talk about it another time, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Sounds very, very interesting. Just want to quickly come back to the cold water swimming. It is quite interesting because one of our previous episodes, Samantha Skyring, uh, founder of Oryx Desert Salt, 
is also passionate about her cold water swimming. Do you, I assume you do it in the sea or where? Yeah, only in the sea. So um, I swim, um, I do open water swimming, especially in Cape Town or in the Western Cape or whatever. Um, If I can't swim, I will shower, cold water shower for five minutes in the morning and five minutes in the evening. Or I will run a cold bath freezing cold bath and line that so I have to have some form of cold water every day and it one of the big things is it brings down inflammation and um and it just yeah it does something to your body and the other thing we have to be careful of with burnout is pain we 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 start to um burnout creates inflammation in the body and um and we start to live in pain, and and that's a terrible, terrible thing because it's very debilitating. And I've heard this with so many um, female entrepreneurs, and um, and I think it is because we push ourselves so hard. So I have found that diet. I, I mean, I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but what I eat makes a huge difference. And I've also started fasting, um, where I do a water fast for three days every month, and that really has helped me. Sure, sure. That sounds like something to really consider. Um, Sarah, you have mentioned that you are about to launch a whole new phase of Wonderbag. What is that? Watch this space. It'll be coming later this year. And um, I'm not going to give any clues, but uh, yeah, I hope your listeners and South Africans will be watching because it's it's really exciting. And um, you know, if two and a half million homes in South Africa use Wonder Bags, we would reduce two stages of load shedding, and that is significant. Um, and so I have engineers and scientists and uh, demands plus specialists and things like that that have worked on this. And so we're launching a campaign around that. Um, but it's it's done in a beautiful way. So, so we want to drive. We are already, I mean, I'm known as the load shedding entrepreneur because um, I think Energy apartheid is one of the most critical things of our time right now in South Africa. And I think that those of us that can should be driving our agendas to adjust energy transition. And at the moment, it's not at all. It is a one-sided thing. And apartheid is live and well in the energy sector in South Africa. And I am determined to take my my business next level to drive change in this space. What was the number that you mentioned? How many bags needs to be used to make the difference in load shedding? 2.5 million homes need to be using Wonder Bags between 5 and 7 at night and 5 and 7 in the morning, and we would reduce load shedding by two stages. So how many bags, wonder bags, are there in South Africa, roughly, at the moment? Um, 
in South Africa, we're probably sitting at about three and a half million. It's uh, we we sell in about sixty countries now, um, and uh, so yeah. And globally, how many bags have you sold roughly in the fifteen years? It's not enough. <laughs> not enough. And people ask why not enough, and that's another learning thing is is that. I probably should have exited as the founder probably seven years ago, you know. And um, so I think we will probably see um, a massive amount of progress. So we've got six and a half million bags in, in homes now. Um, and I think we will see a very big scaling up in the next two years Um and I suppose it's taken 15 years to learn the lessons of how to scale. So that's that's my goal is to find a hot shot engineer or managing general manager who really wants to make an impact in, in the world. And there's a job waiting for them. <laughs> Just a shout out. Okay. Looks very, very promising. Sounds very promising. Sarah, just some final words of wisdom for our entrepreneurs to help them to keep on going and to yeah, keep that business adventure burning. You know, I think, I think one of the things that has helped me is to be part of networking groups. I, I'm not so great at it anymore, but I do speak at them and I do attend them from time to time. But being part of, um, part of where you actually go and meet people face to face, I really recommend you get into offices and you get into spaces where you're with people. Um, it is brutal the last four years what we've had to do, um, and I'm now going back to face-to-face -face as much as I can. So I think that's one thing is try and find like-minded people that you can have brainstorms with, coffee with. Um, and um, I always say also is ask questions. Ask for help. You'll be shocked at how many people help. But people are afraid to ask for help and, um, you know, reach out. Um, if I've got time and somebody reaches out to me, I'll be honest. I'll say, listen, I've got 10 minutes and I'm happy to have a chat. If I've got two hours and we can go and hang out for lunch, I'll do that. I will be honest about my time, but I will, you know, I will help. If I can, and I think people are afraid and they think, oh, she's so successful. You know, people call her the most exciting entrepreneur in South Africa and she's this and that. I'm a human being just like you. And we are all human beings, whether you are starting a business or whether you are not or whether you are 15 years in. We all talk the same language and the lessons we can share will be really benefit um and yeah i also think use linkedin the strangest things have happened to me on linkedin i mean somebody reached out out of the blue they're now my agency they're now going to be the agency that launches this new um this new era in wonderbag and they, 
they reached out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I don't actually use LinkedIn that much, and I don't read most of the messages I got, but I saw hers, I clicked on it, and hey, presto, you know. So take a chance. Walk up to somebody and ask them. Mm -hmm. All they can say is no. Yeah, and don't take that, don't take no as, you know, it's... it's um, if people can help, they will. Generally, people are benevolent and generally people want to help. And if they don't, we'll stuff them and find somebody else.